0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something you're aching to get off your chest? It's not healthy to keep it bottled up inside. Don't cling too tightly to your secrets, regrets, struggles, and resentments. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's also a great way to learn to resolve conflict, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com HeartWisdom today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot slash HeartWisdom. affiliate links and that's another great way to support the podcast thank you for your generous attention
1: so there are all these famous stories in the Buddhist tradition of redemption Angulimala is one Angulimala is a figure in the time of the Buddha this story or myth is told who was, became a mass murderer. And he was born, if you read the story, under a robber star. So his, his um, astrological signs were not good, right? He was going to become a thief and a whatever. Um, but he also had a lot of charism and power. And he went to study with this great spiritual teacher and developed these great yogic powers and so forth. But then the other students became jealous and told all kinds of lies about him to the teacher and the teacher became disenchanted with him and there was a big falling out and he gave him this assignment to go and you know kill a thousand people and bring back their fingers something some horrible this is again a mythological story because a thousand is a mythological number you know it's not literal but there's some way in which the spiritual life that he discovered was in that community hijacked and and um, poisoned by jealousy and lies and so forth. And because he had these great capacities, he could run so swift he could catch a horse, it said, a running horse. He went out killing people and collecting his finger garland. Um, It does say something, if you listen to the mythological nature of it, of the misuse of spirituality, and you say, well, this seems a little extreme, but you know, when you look at fundamentalism in all different ways around the world, when it's taken to an extreme, um, whether it's suicide bombers or you know the the other kinds of um, destructive ways that fundamentalism can go, um, you go, oh, it's not just Angulimala. Um, religious fanaticism can do horrible things. I was in Jerusalem working to visit and support some peacemaking efforts. I was in Palestine and, and in Israel a few years ago. And staying in old Jerusalem, I went to visit the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It's interesting to look I mean old Jerusalem is really amazing, and every square inch of it has history and conflict built in and the her Church of the Holy Sepulchre is is um, it's owned by an ancient Arab family who have the only key to the church, and every morning one of the patriarchs of the family gets up early and goes and unlocks the door so that the Christians can go into this church, okay inside the church. Part of the church is for the Eastern Orthodox Christians. Part of it is for the Roman Christians. They do not, you know, they have their own parts and they won't cross. And somewhere kind of between them is this great wooden ladder that goes up one of the walls, which hasn't been moved for 400 years because there's been a dispute about whose side of the church it is and who it actually belongs to. So, you know, it's nutty, basically. Put it in kind of... Sophisticated psychological terms, right? (laughs) We human beings. So here is Angulimala caught, like, you know, people can get in fanaticism. And he's living in the Jalini forest and waylaying people, and it's terrifying. And the Buddha says, Oh, Angulimala, I think I'll pay him a visit. And he says, Don't go, don't go. You know, you'll be the next victim. But of course, the Buddha. He says, no, no, this is, uh, uh, he says, uh, I think I have a purpose in going there. So he goes into the dark of the Jalini forest, and there's Angulimala with his sword and running toward the Buddha. And as again, it's a myth. It's a story. By his magic powers, the Buddha is able to walk very slowly and mindfully, like Thich Nhat Hanh, if you've ever seen him walk. Meanwhile, Angulimala is running as fast as he can, but he can't catch up. It's as if to show that when you are really present in yourself, the madness of the world can't catch up to you in some way. And finally, Angulimala says, Stop! Stop you! with his sword in the air. And the Buddha turns to him and says, I have stopped, Angulimala. I have stopped harming life. My heart is at rest. You are the one that must stop. And Angulimala stands still. And in another version, the Buddha says, now cut off the limb of that tree with your sword. And Angulimala goes, cuts off this tree. And the Buddha says, now put it back. And Angulimala says, I cannot. And he says, ah, your power is so limited. It can only be used to destroy life. But what about the power to bring things back to life, to preserve life? And somehow in this encounter, Angulimala had met somebody who was so present and dignified and beautiful in his being that his own nobility was touched. And he looked at him and he said, I I will stop. And he threw his weapons in a pit. And he said, I have now seen true greatness. And he bowed down on the ground and asked forgiveness and the Buddha said follow me and I I will teach you. And he became a monk in the Buddhist order. So this is a story like one that I may tell again in the next little while um, of the Tibetan story of Milarepa. Some of you may have heard of the most beloved of all the Tibetan saints who was also a mass murderer whose um, family had been robbed and their land and everything taken away and they were sort of half enslaved, and Milarepa's mother said, you know, you must go and seek revenge. And he did, and he killed a bunch of people. And it's a whole long story that I will tell um, at some point. But then Milarepa says, after this, I was filled with remorse for the crimes I had done and the harm I had caused, and I sought out a teacher, someone, to help me find redemption. And this story, too, like Angulimala, is one of the most favorite stories throughout all the Himalayas. It's like however bad you think you are. Milarepa killed 36 people. You go, okay, well, maybe I'm not quite that bad. There might be hope for me, basically, something like that. So King Pasanadi, who was in the area of where the Buddha met Angulimala then came through with a huge company of armed soldiers headed toward the Jalini forest. And the Buddha said, who knew King Pasanati, are you on your way to make war? And the king said, no, there is this horrible killer who's been slaying people in my kingdom. I'm bringing all these soldiers and we will bring him to justice and put him to death. And the Buddha said, just so, O king, your majesty. Now suppose that such a one could be tamed. Suppose such a one could be transformed. And the king said, well, that seems rather impossible. And then the Buddha says, great king, seated over there quietly under the tree, that is Angulimala. Yeah. And the king was alarmed and his hair stood on ends, as the story is told, even with the soldiers there. And then Angulimala got down and bowed to the Buddha and said, I again ask forgiveness for all I've done. And the king was... Amazed and marveled at the power of the Dharma to transform the human heart. So here's Angulimala now. He's now a monk, but unfortunately he's made what we might call colloquially some bad karma. So he will go out with his begging bowl. Sometimes people would give him food. Sometimes they would throw stones at him and beat him. And he'd go back to the Buddha. He's now very wise. He doesn't want to be violent. he said, what should I do? And the Buddha said, bear it, O noble one. This is karma you have created, and now bear it with some dignity. So there he was, scorned and stoned and so forth. And one morning, Angulimala was out with his bowl, and he passed to home where he heard the loud cries and screams of a woman who was in labor? Who was having great difficulty? And you know, and until recent times, childbirth was a really dangerous thing for women. A lot of women, if it was a breech birth or various things, a lot of women died in childbirth or, you know, various kinds of infections and so forth. It was it was dangerous, and so this woman was in great danger. And Angulimala stopped and he began to say a prayer for her benefit out of compassion. And part of the prayer that he said was, since my birth, I have not harmed a single being. And by the truth of these words, may she be healed. And somebody who was in earshot said, what? How could you say that? You know, kind of a crazy thing to say. And then Angulimala looked back and he said, since my birth in this noble order, Since my birth of the day that I have met the Buddha and heard the teachings, I have not harmed the smallest of living beings. And by the power of this truth, may this woman be safe and healed. And as soon as he said it, the cries diminished and the baby was born and she was safe. Um, And he became actually known as a healer and someone to whom people would pray for his blessings when they were sick. Now, one of the things interesting in this myth or this story is that it said even though he was born under a robber star, that is to say, if we're talking about um, temperament and karma and so forth, that wisdom and training can trump your temperament. You might have been born in... You know, whether it's astrologically or just in one of those families. You know those families. <laughs> that's why they call them nuclear families, right? <laughs> anyway, one of them kind, right? But the modern research that's shown, and Cliff, Saren, and Richie Davids, and so forth, all these people who are demonstrating the remarkable dimensions of neuroplasticity show that you are not limited by what happened to you. And even some of the studies show that six, eight, ten weeks of meditation practice begins to rewire your nervous system. And it's measurable, kind of extraordinary. So temperament, the the fears you carry, the body of fear, is not who you are. And the miss, of course, describes the misuse of religion and spirituality. You know, whether you take it as a grim duty and use it to beat yourself up or use it to punish yourself or other people or take revenge or all those kinds of things. But underneath it, then the invitation is to your dignity and your nobility that is fundamental, that is born into you. So here you come and you sit in the middle of your own mysterious human incarnation we don't take that much time to actually reflect about our human incarnation so often we're kind of busy just you know checking off the to-do list and trying to pay the bills and you know do the things that are expected of you and so forth but here you are for a short time in this human life what matters how do you want to what do you want to do with it what what kind of dance do you want to make of this human life you sit quietly, decide, all right, I'm going to quiet my mind, become more loving, and so forth. And then, first of all, the mind isn't terribly quiet. You see the monkey mind right away. And the monkey mind, monkey doesn't go away. We all have our I have my monkey, too. I know. He's a very. His name is also Jack, but you know. He's just Monkey Jack. OK, hi. You back again? Yeah. Hi, dude. Here we are. But along with the monkey mind and the various emotions, that's not the problem. Those are just waves of energy. You get good feelings and pleasant and unpleasant feelings, and the mind secretes thoughts the way the salivary gland secretes saliva. It just does, it's a river of thoughts. That's fine. But on top of it are all the judgments. I shouldn't be thinking. I should be quiet. I shouldn't be worried about that. That person didn't say the right thing. I've got to redo this. I'm planning to do that. I'm worried about that. And there's so much self-judgment, and should, and, and regret, and then shame, and, and guilt, and all those things. Anybody have that? You notice? You know? interviewing various spiritual elders and teachers for this book some years ago. In my second community, this is an older nun who's speaking, there were only a dozen nuns. I liked all but two. One was lazy, and the other was self-absorbed. After my first year, I was in the kitchen complaining to a friend who said, you know, these are really not bad people. What is it that gets to you? I said, well, one is lazy, and the other one just takes too much care of herself. And she looked back at me and said, well, you ought to be more lazy and take better care of yourself. (laughs) You know how it works, isn't it, huh? A little bit of projection there, right? And I remember in my teacher Ajahn Chah's monastery that there was this monk Ajahn Som. He became an Ajahn, which means teacher. And he had been a street tough and a bit of a thug But then, like Angulimala, he found some calling to the Dharma. He knew that he'd created a lot of suffering. Became a monk. He began to practice. But he still had how how do we say it thuggy like habits. Somewhat. He was not easy. He was critical, hard, you know. And he had this great big scar where he'd been in some knife fight and stuff. He looked the part, right? Couple missing teeth or whatever. And then after some years. Ajahn Chah made, SOM, made Ajahn SOM the abbot of this little monastery. And I thought, my God, how could he do that? This guy is, you know, he's uh, he's still angry, and he's, you know, and and he's he's not at all the ideal kind of abbot and monk you would think a good Buddhist monastery should have. And I remember going and complaining one day to Ajahn Chah, you know, Westerners have this nerve, you know, right? <laughs> How could you do that? And he looked at me and it was such a kind of moment of compassion. He said, if you could see where this man came from, if you could see how he had been, you would be so moved by what he has become and what he's dedicated himself to. He said, Yeah, I know. He said, the, the young monks at his monastery, they're not gonna stay long. He's not all that easy to be with. But even if it's just him. He's done something really, really amazing considering where he came from. And it was just, there was so much sweetness and understanding when he described that. It's never too late to start anew. Never. And so the point of meditation isn't self judgment and self criticism and some grim duty, it's to sit in the midst of this mysterious human incarnation and hold it with mercy and compassion and understanding and a gracious heart and not be so afraid. Yes, you've messed up. Who hasn't messed up? Please raise your hand. You can have your $8 back. right? (laughs) Dina Metzger, friend and wonderful poet, she says, give me everything mangled and bruised, and I will make a light of it to make you weep, and we will have rain, and we will begin again. And there's something so important in the teachings of beginner's mind that this moment, every breakfast is a time to start your life again, no matter what the circumstances are. And in the time that it takes for me to say this one sentence, 50,000 cells have died and been reborn in your body, 100 billion red cells a day, 600,000 particles of skin an hour lost, your body's renewing itself, the stomach lining new every five days, New liver, pretty much every six weeks, all the cells renew themselves. All right, so your body's doing, how about your thoughts? Well, you get reruns for those, I'm sorry, but you know, they try to renew themselves. Mm. Stop thinking our global crisis is all there is. Realize that for every ongoing war and religious outrage and and environmental devastation, there are a thousand counterbalancing acts of staggering generosity and humanity and art and beauty happening all over the world right now on a breathtaking scale from flower box to cathedral. Resist the temptation to drown in fatalism, to shake your head and sigh and throw in the karmic towel, and realize that this is the perfect moment to envision the re-enchantment of the world, to change the energy, to step right up, crank up your personal volume, right when it all seems dark and bitter and offensive and acrimonious and conflicted and bilious, here's your opening. Remember mystery and finally believe in the seeds you plant. Believe you are part of a groundswell, of resistance, a seemingly small, but actually very large, impending transformation of consciousness, a shift of humanity, the beginning of something important and potent and unstoppable. And that's from Mark Morford. So it means somehow aligning yourself, even in this messy human incarnation. Anybody not have a messy incarnation? Just checking here, right? you know in this messy human world to align yourself with nobility and redemption and compassion and possibility I was in Hawaii gosh look at this I've got pages to go and (laughs) not that much longer we'll see where we get to I was in Hawaii um, a few months before um, and uh, in part, was was going to meet and listen to um, Aung San Suu Kyi, the Nobel Prize winner, who's now free and running in elections to Burma, and probably likely to become the next president of Burma or prime minister. Um, and I, we've had I've had mutual friends who've known her for a long time, and I've admired her so much and wanted to listened to her talk, and it was quite remarkable. That's a whole other story that I might tell at some point. But here is the piece that was so interesting. At one point, she stood up there, and she gave a talk at the university and one to business leaders from around the world, and then with high school students. It was the most interesting, because they asked the most interesting questions. But anyway, at some point, she said, you know, she said, 17 years under house arrest, they never really had me in prison because I never hated them. So I took it as a retreat, thank you. I mean, that's kind of remarkable. She said, and now I'm out. And it would be easy to remain an icon. She said, it's so easy to remain above the fray. Oh, the great Aung San Suu Kyi. She was peaceful in the midst of it all. She counsels nonviolence. She's this wonderful you know, beacon of, of possibility and so forth. She said, but when I quiet myself and I look to how I can serve my people, the people of Burma, she said, I've decided to do something really radical. I've decided to become a politician. (laughs) She said, and that means getting my hands dirty and getting down in the mud and talking to people you don't want me to talk to, and making compromises that look to you ugly and not right, and, and actually getting into the dirt of, and the difficulty and the conflict of our country, because that's what I believe is the best way to serve the people of Burma. It was a kind of remarkable thing to say, all right, I'm not gonna be you know, the Nobel goddess, whatever the world thinks of me, but I am actually willing to enter the mud of it and become a, the dirty word, right? Kind of, kind of fantastic. So, redemption is possible. The heart can be transformed by nobility. Not always, not everyone, but as Nelson Mandela points out, you know, sneaking out of prison after all those years, Give it a try. It's possible. And the most important thing is that it's possible for you. So there was, because Jacques Verdun, who uh, helped start the Inside Prison Project in San Quentin that grew out of Spirit Rock's work and now is a wonderful project around the state and elsewhere, one of the moving parts of this work in San Quentin is the work of restorative justice which is this very delicate and deep and difficult and powerful work of bringing together those people who committed terrible crimes, murder and other such terrible crimes, um, and their victims, so that the, those who committed the crimes can actually speak to and hear and see the effect of what happened it might be the mother of somebody who was killed who comes and there's a long process of preparing both sides if they're really interested to even begin to be able to be in the same room together and there was one woman whose son was killed accidentally in a gang fight and you know he was this beautiful 19-year-old boy and he was shot to death and you know, all the incredible grief and all these things. And somehow after some years, maybe it was five or ten years, through some connection she felt she had to learn how people could shoot each other like that. it just kill an innocent person. She just couldn't comprehend it. So she got involved in this work of restorative justice and Jacques took her in to meet with a number of the men in San Quentin who had shot people who had committed murder and killed young people. They weren't the people who killed her son. It was never clear who had done that. But they'd committed the same kinds of murders. And so she began to go and spend time with them and learn their names. She told her story, you know, which pierced their hearts. It has to when you hear a mother course these were the ones that wanted to listen they told their stories and she became part of the project that would go in and visit these men many of whom are lifers and then on the whatever anniversary it was maybe it was the 10th anniversary of the death of her son they the men all got together in advance of this and said, well, she's gonna be coming in, we have to do something. And so in the months leading up to that, they tore off or cut off pieces of their prison clothing um, and they hand-stitched a quilt for her. And in every square they had, they sewed in, Uh, blessings or prayers or asking for forgiveness or the name of her son and on the 10th anniversary of the death of her son she went into the prison and the men sat down and they said we've made something for you and here was what they'd sewn with their own hands the whole group with her son's name in the middle and all these messages and they said we just want to know how much your willingness to come And look us in the eye and understand us has meant to our lives. Can we offer that to one another? Can you? And can you offer it to yourself? To all the ways that you've messed up and all the ways that you judge yourself and all the ways that, you know, even when you sit in meditation, you can hear those harsh voices that say you haven't done it right, this incarnation, I'm sorry, you have to come back, right? <laughs> or whatever it says. And to meditate is kind of to break the spell of what we talk to ourselves over and over again, and to become what my teacher, Ajahn Kra called the one who knows, the, the place of wisdom and listening that says yes, Sometimes we forget, sometimes we harm ourselves or one another. You know, as the Zen master Ryokan said, last year a foolish monk, this year no change, right? (laughs) So we see that. But this is William Butler Yeats. We can make our minds so like still water that beings gather round us that they may see their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. And so when we become still, we do it for ourselves, we become a a mirror to our own hearts and also we become a mirror to others because we're not caught in the reactivity and the judgment And we look like those men did back to this woman and said, you know, you've been willing to come and hear our stories and our pain and understand us and the suffering. And we are so grateful to be listened to and to be seen in this way. I want to read you a story, I think, one more. There's so many more things to say. But they'll just have to go on to another talk. And it's one of my favorite stories um, that I read here every couple of years. Um, and it comes from a man that I knew, knew pretty well and loved named Terry Dobson. And Terry Dobson was a, um, <laughs> I was going to say, he was a killer martial artist. He was a, wasn't literally a killer, but he was an extraordinary martial artist and Aikidoist, but he studied all the other arts, judo and kendo and things like that. And, um, uh, he was a martial arts teacher. He'd been in Japan for a long time, came back, and he was very well known. And I remember teaching together with him in these men's retreats with Robert Bly and Michael Mead, James Hillman, that I was a part of for many years in Mendocino. And at one point, Terry was right. Near the end of his life, and he was having a lot of heart problems, but he was there teaching martial arts as reconciliation, as really bringing peace. And two guys got into a really big argument and fight, and standing up, and they were really going to go at it. And they turned to Terry, like, how do we do this? You know, How do we get this? And he just looked at me and says, you know, guys, I just don't have time for this anymore in my life, this kind of conflict. I don't really have the heart for it. And he said it in such a loving way that they just kind of took a breath and said, OK, then we won't fight. In fact, that was beautiful. Anyway, so here's the, here's the story. Um, and it's it's his story, but it's really, it's a story about meditation, about what it means to sit with the whole of your own humanity, the movements of your mind, the the joys and the the grief that you carry, the tears, the longings, things unrequited, um, the conflicts that you have in your life. And he talks about riding the subway outside of Tokyo. An afternoon, the car is sort of empty, a few housewives with their kids and a few people. And the station stop, stop, and this great big Japanese laborer who's really drunk and belligerent, gets on the car, swaggers in, you know, starts shouting at people and spinning, you know, and trying to hit them and swearing and so forth. And people get terrified and run to the end of the car. And Terry says, I have been taught as a martial artist that you should never use this against people unless there's a clear, moral, compelling reason But underneath it, I've been waiting for several years to waste somebody and try my art. And here, it's like the green light is on. This guy's going to hurt somebody. He's big, and I'm going to take him down, right? You know, young, macho guy. He's been putting in hours training. And finally, it's here it is. He said, my teacher said, Aikido is the art of reconciliation. Whoever has the mind to fight has broken their connection with the universe. But even though I heard those words, I saw this was the, this was the moment they needed me. Seeing me stand up, we stood up. The drunk recognized a chance to focus his rage. Ah, foreigner, you need a lesson in Japanese manners. I held onto the commuter strap and gave him a slow look of disgust and dismissal. I planned to take this turkey apart, but he, he had to make the first move. I wanted him really mad. So I pursed my lips and blew him an insolent kiss. <laughs> it, uh, baited the poor guy. All right, he hollered. You're going to get a lesson and gathered himself to rush at me. A split second before he could move, someone shouted, hey, hey. It was ear splitting. I remember the strange, lilting quality of it, as though you and a friend had been searching diligently for something and stumbled upon it, finally, hey. I wheeled to my left, the drunk spun to his right. We both stared down at a little old Japanese man, well into his seventies, a tidy, tiny gentleman sitting there immaculate in his kimono. He took no notice of me but beamed delightedly at the laborer as though he had the most important, most welcome secret to share. Come here, the old man said in easy vernacular. Come here, talk with me, waved his hand lightly. The big man followed as if on a string. He planted his feet belligerently in front of the old gentleman, and I roared and roared above the clacking wheels, why the hell should I talk to you? The drunk had his back to me, and if he moved a millimeter more, I was going to take him down. (laughs) The old man continued just to beam at this laborer. What you been drinking, he asked, his eyes sparkling with interest. "'I've been drinking sake,' the laborer bellowed. "'None of your business, flecks of spittle,' spattered the man. "'Oh, that's wonderful,' the old man said. "'Absolutely wonderful. You see, I love sake, too. "'Every night, me and my wife,' she's 76, you know, "'we warm up a little bottle of sake and take it out into the garden, "'and we sit on an old wooden bench and watch the sun go down, "'and we look to see how our persimmon tree is doing. "'My great-grandfather planted that tree, we worry about whether it will recover "'from those ice storms we had last winter.'" Our tree's done better than I expected, though, especially when you consider the poor quality of the soil. It's gratifying to watch when we take our sake and go out to enjoy the evening, even when it rains. And he looked at the labor. His eyes were just twinkling. As he struggled to follow the old man's conversation, the drunk's face began to soften. His fists slowly unclenched. Yeah, he said, I love persimmons, too. His voice trailed off. Yes, said the old man smiling, and I'm sure you have a wonderful wife. No, replied the laborer, my wife died. And very gently, swaying with the motion of the train, the big man began to sob. I don't got no wife, I don't got no home, I don't got no job, I'm so ashamed of myself. And tears rolled down his cheeks, a spasm of despair rippled through his body. And now it was my turn. Standing there in my well-scrubbed, youthful innocence, my make-this-world-safe-for-democracy-righteousness, I suddenly felt dirtier than he was. Then the train arrived at my stop, and as the doors opened, I heard the old man cluck sympathetically. My, my, he said, That's such a difficult predicament. Here, sit down, tell me about it. And I turned my head back for one last look, and the laborer was sprawled on the seat, his head in the old man's lap. The old man with the silk kimono was softly stroking the filthy matted hair. (laughs) And as the train pulled away, I sat down on a bench. What I had wanted to do with muscle had been accomplished with kind words. I had just seen the martial art tried in combat, and the essence of it was love. I would have to practice the art with an entirely different spirit. It would be a long time before I could speak about the resolution of conflict. The world and your life is full of second chances any morning, any evening, any day. It says in the Buddhist texts, if you bring a lamp into a dark place, it does not matter if it's been dark for a day or a 100 years. It will be illuminated. And so the gift of meditation isn't so much what happens when you sit, but just that you stop. And you take your seat halfway between heaven and earth, under your tree of enlightenment, your own Buddha seat. And you bring yourself back, quiet the mind, bring a loving awareness to this mystery, incarnation, life, and all the conflicts and struggles and beauty and possibility. And somehow renew yourself, renew your dignity, renew your connection to the real wisdom of your heart, to the kind of inner freedom that no one can take from you. You become a citizen of love, as it said. The earth is too small a star and we too brief a visitor upon it for anything to matter more than love.
0: Thanks everybody for listening to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We appreciate your support, and we ask you to continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash jack. Look forward to seeing you next week.